1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: The issues that divide us. And you think, well, Craig, wait a minute. Do we really need to do this? I mean, isn't this an exercise that ought to be flipped on its head? Shouldn't we, after all, talk more about unity within the church? And there are certainly some very valid points to that question. And we'll, we'll pose that to our apologist and guest expert in a moment. But today I think about the fact that quite often when you talk to non-believers about positions concerning the church or their viewpoints. They are very rapid at telling you exactly what it is that we are against, frequently if ever, or infrequently if ever. Do they know what we stand for? And it really comes down to then questions pertaining to what's the schism within the church, um, the church with a, with a, with a big C, um, the sense of this polarization perhaps That has always made me wonder, if we are the same church, the same body of Christ that reads from the same Bible, we are drawn to the same Savior, we serve the same Lord, how is it on so many key questions we arrive at such varying or polar opposite conclusions on the same topic? talk about that as we welcome into the conversation Dr. Alex McFarland. You know him best as a great author and director of the Christian Worldview and Apologetics Center the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. He is a syndicated talk show host, been a frequent guest on this program down through the years. And uh, Dr. Alex, as always, great to have you on the show.
1: Well, Craig, thank you very much. You're very gracious, and it's an honor to be on again.
0: What about this this sort of core pondering that I have, and I've always wondered at this as I look at extremes within Christendom and we can talk about this if you know at the denominational level, we can talk about it at the uh, at, at key questions and I think we have to perhaps set some guidelines here. We're not talking about the the, the five pillars of the faith here, certainly unity on the birth, deity of Christ, the atonement, um, right. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, essentially, and his ultimate return. I mean, in order to kind of be within the, the fold or the definition of Christian, we have to find unity on those five key points or five key pillars. But it's so many other things, as you articulate in the book, that it seems so odd that we as Christians, and even the world, I'm sure, must shake their head at this, that we claim to serve the same Christ, we have the same Bible, and yet we draw very different conclusions.
1: Yeah, and you know, when I speak at university campuses, which is pretty frequently, you know, that's one of the things I hear a lot that, um, uh, they'll say, you know, how can you say this or that is the biblical position when you've got Christians of all strata that disagree on, you know, moral issues and issues that touch our, you know, culture and society. And, and I really think some of the origin of the division, like, like I write about in the book, 10 Issues That Divide Christians, um, relates to kind of a, a, a subtle drift away from scripture that 's been taking on on uh, for several decades you know we 've been really sort of losing our view of of the Bible as as the authority for life and practice
0: hmm. So even as much as the perception from the outside looking in that we have all this commonality, how do we draw such differing conclusions? Maybe it is because of that that drift that we have seen that in many cases the source from which we draw the direction and the guidance and sort of the moral compass that you're suggesting is is not necessarily as common as it once used to be.
1: Well, and and let me preface everything that I'm going to say that um you know I'm a guy that I love the church. I mean, I I became a Christian when I was 21. I was in college and you know was one to Christ through a local church. I was discipled in in a church and you know the Bible is very clear that that you know Jesus is Lord of the church and you know if you read like Matthew 16:18, he said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what I'm about to say, I'm not bashing the Church, necessarily, but um, today's adult Christian was in a youth group, you know, in some previous uh, years. And I've got to say that, you know, really since the late 70s up through the present day, youth group, youth ministry in America, uh, became very much focused on entertainment And you've got to entertain kids and win kids, and you don't want to bore a kid because they might, you know, become uh, disinterested and walk away. And, you know, fun and entertainment is is great. I was a youth pastor for seven years, and, I mean, I did my share of of, uh, paintball and pizza. But, um, you know, somewhere along the continuum, we really watered-down discipleship. And we ju- we just did. I mean, church in the last 25, 30 years of American life has really not been as rigorous as in previous generations. Um, not only uh, really letting God's Word shape your life and permeate your heart, but, I mean, just having standards of of speech and morality. And if you begin to talk about, you know, godliness and really um, you know, avoiding worldliness. Um, you know, some people are going to say that you're a legalist, and I'm listen. I'm I'm not a legalist by any stretch of the imagination, but I really do think, in terms of um, discipleship and the life of the mind, really um, transforming our mind with God's truth. Um, the last couple of generations have really not had the edge that previous centuries of Christendom have had and so here we are in the 21st century and you know in many a in many a context the church does not look appreciably different than the world
0: and that's ironic because uh, you're right we can see this this shift this paradigm shift that has happened uh, within the church particularly as, as you relate in this case to young people where oftentimes and I, and I let me do my my disclaimer here too i'm not suggesting that this is indicative of all youth ministry within the church, but certainly a growing percentage of it that seems to be occupied with the idea of keeping the kids occupied or entertained, getting them out of the house for a while, giving them something to do to keep them engaged while adult services are taking place, as opposed to the notion of, okay, here's our chance to speak truth into these young minds and to mold and to fashion and to embed foundational Um, truisms into their life, upon which we will then ultimately build their relationship with Christ, their relationships with others. Uh, It's interesting because I'm going to date myself here. Uh, There was an organization called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. Sure. Uh, This was a big thing back in the 1970s and early 1980s, but certainly throughout late 60s, early 70s. And uh, a couple of different churches that I was involved with, there was some point at which the focus of the, the educational program within the church for young people was so heavily directed toward, again, foundation building that getting into intense instruction along the lines of an institute in basic youth conflicts, and the older folks in the audience like me will remember what that was, we, we saw that as being critically important. And yet today we've made this paradigm shift from let's educate them to let's entertain them.
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, yesterday I was on the phone with a, um, a, a youth speaker, I'm sure many, many, many of your listeners will know, very well-known youth speaker, and we were talking about, you know, getting, um, you know, dates on our schedule. Um, by God's grace, I've spoken in uh, roughly 1,400 churches over the last 18 years to do my apologetics seminars, which I love to do. And, you know, by the grace of God, I still, you know, I keep a very busy calendar, but this particular speaker was talking to me, and he said, you know, I'm not getting uh, the bookings with younger youth pastors, because th- this particular speaker's pretty meaty, pretty pretty heady, and he said, you know, a lot of the, the issues like premarital sex and abortion and uh, biblical morality, um, you know, traditional values versus homosexuality, um, he said that the the youth pastors that are say thirty five and younger um, either don't book me or similar speakers or if they do they don 't want me to talk about um, these really tough issues and so you know while it 's true you know we don 't you know we don 't want to just you know give young people the idea that you know uh, everything's bad you know you 've got to look at the world in just these you know negative terms i mean the fact is you know we we do have to help. Christians of all generations understand that you know it's a fallen world it's a broken world it's a a world that's been tainted by sin and sinners need a savior and we who have found Jesus Christ we're to grow in Christ Christ owns us all um... you know any realm of life whether it's our personal behavior it's our morality our our politics uh, our vocation I mean, God has spoken. You know, my friend Del Tackett of the Truth Project, you know, he says, look around in any direction, 360 degrees, and in any sphere of life, God has spoken. And so it's biblical worldview applied and lived out. And rather than, you know, take uh, succeeding generations of young people through, you know, the rigors of becoming a disciple and learning God's Word, oftentimes there's just been hey, let's just keep it very, very superficial, simple little faith in Jesus, but yet we've not taken each other uh, deep. Barna said this, listen to this quote. Barna, in talking about the lack of uh, you know, a Christian worldview, he said, without a biblical worldview, teaching goes in one ear and out the other. There are no intellectual pegs in the mind to hang these truths on, so they just pass through, and they don't make a difference. So, um as daunting as it may sound and uh maybe as uninteresting as it may sound although i really don't think it is i think the christian worldview is really the, one of the most invigorating uh exciting things to apply our attention to but as daunting as it might sound we have to teach biblical worldview what christians believe why we believe it and how to how to live it out and i have found let me let me say i have found kids whether they're middle schoolers elementary high school If you're talking about God's truth and and why it matters and how it counts for eternity, they will track with you. They They will not tune you out. They will listen. I mean, I speak somewhere virtually every weekend. I talk to middle schoolers the same way that I talk to the grad students at North Greenville University or Liberty University, and that they can get it. And so I just want to challenge parents, pastors, youth pastors, that we've got to build a new generation of spiritual marines and not only do they not uh, turn away, they actually like to be challenged. Uh, I, I think kids want uh, a faith. It's worth dying
0: for. Well, and we sell our kids short when we suggest that they're not capable of any of this. And I think a lot of it, perhaps, uh, Dr. McFarland, is a product of the culture that we're in today, where, let's face it, we've grown accustomed to all that is instant, cheap, easy, uh, minimal commitment, and because it's not a lot of work involved in that. Uh, of course, sadly, too, there's also not a lot of results in it either. We're talking with Dr. Alex McFarland. He is one of the nation's leading Christian apologists. He is a celebrated book author, syndicated talk show host, director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University in, you guessed it, Greenville, South Carolina. And we're discussing his new book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. We'll get back to more of the conversation. We'll talk more, too, about this notion that perhaps the church is sort of settling into what is superficial because it is simply, well, just that simple. A timeout back with more as Lifeline continues. And back with author and Christian apologist, Dr. Alex McFarland, his new book, 10 Issues That Divide Christians. By the way, newly released by Regal Books. You'll find it at The Usual Suspects as well as Amazon.com. And you can also order it online through Dr. McFarland's website. It's easy, AlexMcFarland.com. Now, Alex, I want to choose my words wisely here because I know the minute I say this, somebody's going to tune in a nanosecond late, not catch the whole statement. And uh, the next thing I'll know, I'm going to be uh, accused here of teaching heresy, <laughs> but I, I'm wondering, we spoke just before the break about this sense that it seems as if we're, we're not willing to do the hard work, we want it instant, cheap, easy, no commitment, um, it's as if we want our Christianity to be simple and ultimately superficial. I have to wonder, if we look at the five pillars, we can talk about virgin birth, deity, Christ, death, burial, resurrection, all indicative of, of what I believe. Sure. And yet, and here's where I get into trouble because somebody's going to misconstrue this, but it doesn't require a lot of me. And and here's what I mean by that. When you talk about embracing the truths of the teachings of Jesus Christ that touch on so many aspects of life, and you hit a lot of the major ones inside these 10 issues that divide Christians, a lot of this requires me to be engaged, to think, to bring my, my thinking and my behavior in line with... God's ideal for me and what Scripture teaches, it, it causes me to have some skin in the game. Whereas, and again, here I'm afraid to get, I'm, get in trouble because somebody's going to misconstrue what I'm saying. Whereas, accepting, for example, the virgin birth doesn't, other than a little, you know, mustard grain worth of faith doesn't really require a lot of me and doesn't cause me to change my life very much. Is that part of the problem here, that we, we're okay on the five fundamental pillars because at the end of the day, it doesn't call a lot for me to do?
1: Yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head and uh for the record I, I I don't think you're being heretical. Um you know um it's been pointed out quite a bit. Uh so this is not original with me obviously, but um there's orthodoxy and there's orthopraxy. Well, you know, orthodoxy is right belief and orthopraxy from the Greek word praxis which means action, orthopraxy is right action. And so, you know, to embrace orthodoxy um, you're right. That doesn't cost us a whole lot. We say, okay, Jesus is the Son of God. He's deity. I, I get that. His blood was shed on the cross to wash my sins away. That's the atonement. I get that. And you're right. The the, the pillars of of biblical truth. You know, we we put our faith. We believe those. But orthopraxy, uh, right action. That that's going to require what Paul talked about in First Corinthians about I die daily. Now. Uh, the sin that tempts one person may not be the sin that tempts somebody else, and you know whether it 's you know goodness gracious anger issues or or you know immorality or just slothfulness and being lazy and i mean um what sin it is that Christ wants you to turn from and overcome in his power that's between everyone listening and the holy spirit but but you're right getting some skin in the game as you said i mean that takes discipline it takes it takes sacrifice and you know um in the um 1700s and 1800s in, in Europe, uh, some of the things that really transform Europe, the history books tell us the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, but one of the big things that transformed Europe in the the you know, 18th and 19th centuries was the Wesley-led revival. And they talked much about spiritual discipline. And they even had a kind of an early form of accountability groups that Wesley called holy clubs, where they would get... You know, eyeball to eyeball with each other, and they would ask each other, you know, did you pray today? Are you reading God's Word? Are you, uh, letting Christ have victory over your life? And, um, they were, to, to our 21st century ears, rather invasive personal questions, uh, but the church was serious about corporate Christ likeness, and, and it transformed Europe, and there are other examples I could give, but, but you're right. We, C.S. Lewis talked about a Christianity that promises something, but also demands something. And yeah. Jesus demands our all, doesn't he?
0: Yes, he does. And, and, you know, for for Christianity to be thoroughly transformative, we need to yield ourselves to it. And as much as I say that, you know, kind of the easy part is the embracing of the five pillars here, the five fundamentals, and yet I, I'm quickly too reminded that if you really... Ponder on these things if you are meditative upon scripture and fully understand the totality of what those five pillars really mean to me or to, you know, each of us individually. It cannot help but be transformative it is perhaps then that we kind of stop at that point. We we accept it by faith, but we take it no further because the transformative part suggests also a tremendous amount of of surrendering, doesn't it? And maybe it's that part here that we don't want to surrender to the hard work of Christianity, to the transformative part of Christianity, because let's face it, it requires a little bit of effort, it requires some sacrifice, it requires giving up of things.
1: Well, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, the, the fact is that, um, we've got to recover an ethic of, of, of discipleship that, you know, we, we've got to let God define what, um, we are to look like. I mean, we're, we're content with kind of where we are. Um, many times in, even in American Christendom, and, hey, man, I'm preaching at Alex here too. I mean, we're content with what we are but we're not content with what we have. And that's 180 degrees out of faith. Mm-hmm. We should be content with the things we have, but not really content with the person that we are. You know, Christianity is is a lifelong pursuit of, of Christ-likeness and letting God change us. And, um, you know, let, let's tie this to America of the 21st century, because, you know, studies show all this, you know, pretty disconcerting data that uh, we're not seeing a lot of people get saved. So many, many churches are plateaued or declining. Uh, The good Lord knows that those who espouse, you know, biblical values have pretty much had their hat handed to them in recent elections. And, you know, Christianity today a few years ago said, you know, gone is the ability to think Christianly in common, even within one denomination. And, this might sound simplistic and it might sound old fashioned but craig i'm I'm just going to say, as a guy that's been in you know all fifty states many times over to preach, we need an awakening, we need a revival and, and by the way, the word revival is a biblical word it means a return to the things that bring life, and uh it's for the great commission it's for our children's children, and it's for the salvation of our nation.
0: You know, and it's interesting because when you say that, my mind quickly went to how interesting it has been of recent decades that frequently when the church speaks of revival, we do so in the context of um, seeing a mass wave of the Holy Spirit that would bring about a sense of conviction, and therefore non-believers would suddenly turn to Christ, repent, and become believers, that it is somehow transformative of those on the outside of the walls of the church and yet it would suggest to me that if you're going to revive something, that has to suggest that there would have been a spark of life there to begin with. Maybe the biggest part of the transformative work that needs to take place in the world in general is not just the world in general, but it really starts with the church in specific. Reviving of the body of Christ, does it not? I mean, after all, what we're really talking about here when we when we discuss many of these moral issues, and we're going to dive into them after a, a brief time out here, uh, Dr. McFarland. but we're really talking about the way we as the church have kind of surrendered and given up on these points, aren't we?
1: Exactly, exactly. The the church looks too much like the world, and before we see much church growth, we, we've got to see some church help.
0: Do we ask the wrong question? Because quite frankly, Christians get together and we'll talk about politics of the day and the news of the day and things of this sort, and usually that conversation will center back around to, well, what's happened to the world? Are we asking ourselves the wrong question ultimately?
1: I think we have yeah that you hit it on the head, i mean it 's um sinner's sin uh, we can 't fault a lost person for acting like a lost person
0: no, but, no, as, as I frequently say don 't be surprised when the unregenerate behave so
1: well said <laughs> well said yeah we you know we 've got to again believe that people without christ are are on their way to hell um, we 've got to have compassion and really believe what Jesus told us about the spiritual condition of people that uh, without the new birth, uh, people are lost. And I I think we've got to, again, take Christ's Great Commission seriously, that uh, we're to go into all the world, preach the gospel, we're to make disciples from all nations, and that includes our very own nation here the United Mm. States.
0: Very true. Dr. Alex McFarland with us tonight. We are talking about the ten issues that divide Christians. We'll take a time out. We'll dive into some of these issues Ask Dr. McFarland why these particular issues and ultimately why each of them are so important. A Time out back with more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Back now to the conversation, Dr. Alex McFarland, my guest, to look at his book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. Now, let's get into some of these topics. Uh, First, out of curiosity, and just in terms of arriving at these, I guess any of us could sit down and come up with a list. I don't know that we would all match with the same list. But in terms of these, why did you feel that these were the most divisive and, at the same token, perhaps the most important?
1: Uh, Well, Craig, when I travel and speak, I do a lot of open mic Q&A. And I keep a lot of notes. Um, you know, one of my first books was The Ten Most Common Objections to Christianity and How to how to Effectively Answer Them. And, you know, for a couple of years, I was just keeping track of the Q&A that I would do in churches and at colleges. And, uh, you know, these came up, issues like, you know, abortion and homosexuality and war and the, the environment. And, you know, what did America's founders intend to, the role of religion to be in public life. And, you know, one thing in talking to young people, uh, the concept of, of, you know, what is called American exceptionalism, you know, and uh, I would say that I'm a very patriotic person. I I love this nation, and uh, I, I really don't see, even among Christian millennials, those that are under 30, I don't always see a lot of, you know, love of America. And so I did feel like... um you know american exceptionalism was something to write about to try to get um kind of a new generation of christians sort of up to speed on what has made this country unique so um among some of the hot button issues that you know it's kind of funny I'll be at these churches and you know imagine like on a on a sunday morning i i would preach but then on a sunday night we would have an open q and a and you know there's you know 800 people there and somebody comes to the mic and asks about you know, homosexuality or gay marriage or, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender issues or what about online porn? And, you know, you can see the pastor sometimes would get uh, uncomfortable. But but I've got to say that, um, you know, I've never um, tried to answer these in a way that's abrasive or burns bridges. I've always tried to give audiences, you know, content that was biblically factual and, you know, statistically driven given good, relevant information that is, um, you know, speaking the truth, but speaking it in love. And I've found that so many audiences around the nation, um, even if they disagree, um, and even, let's say there's people there that have been brought with a friend, and maybe they're not a person who's a Christian yet. um, If you have these dynamics, trust, honesty, and respect, trust, honesty, and respect, um you know you can talk to people about even some of the most uh volatile issues and in the book we try to encourage the church um to you know not be afraid to to tackle even the the thorniest of problems or issues because you know god god's word has spoken god has something to say about the biggest challenges of life and and i guess i just i came up with this first volume of 10 potentially divisive issues
0: are, are some of these issues ones also that perhaps um, we need to do some work on in terms of sort of reclaiming them for the church and and I raised that question I, I you had a, a you you shared an experience in there which reminded me of one that I had many years ago speaking at a, a public fundraiser and and um, um Ryan Dobson, Jim Dobson's son, happened Thank to you. be the keynote speaker, and I was the, the MC. And at the end of the event and a couple of days later, I found out that uh, um, uh, some of the members of the board of directors of this organization had uh, made it very vocally known that they did not want either of us invited back to the event. <laughs> uh, because while we were at a pro-life event, um, both Ryan Dobson and I made note of the fact that we had just elected a pro-life president. Mm-hmm. And it was concluded that we had somehow just by making that comment of something that had happened that very week uh, that we were politicizing the entire event and it was a terrible thing that we had done so. And I, and I, and I thought of the story that you shared um, where you had been accused of politicizing um one of your talks because you addressed issues concerning abortion and welfare gay marriage uh, the role of government at all and uh, some of the uh, some of the um, more influential people within right. this organization had said that well clearly you were taking a republican view of these points and you should not be too publicized or, I'm sorry to to politicize uh that church meeting
1: yeah um you know, I, I remember that interview when you and I had that conversation and and that 's right um you know oftentimes, if you come out with you know a a strong stance, a biblical stance on some of these issues um periodically and let, let me just say it, somebody will say, "Oh well, I suppose you think God is a republican and it's it 's not that at all. I will say that um you know in recent decades there have been a number of issues that many republican candidates took a more biblical stance on like the issue of life that life is sacred in all contexts and we we do not murder unborn humans for convenience and so um... uh, but, but let me say this friends um... jesus addressed political issues um, when Jesus would engage the Sanhedrin, you know they at the time of christ uh, i don 't know if a lot of people know this, but you know um, the the Jewish nation they had its own police force, the sanhedrin uh, would adjudicate uh, legal and moral and political matters, and when Jesus would uh, dialogue with the Pharisees, I mean it would be almost like um, a religious leader today. Um, engaging with an elected official. And so it's, it's really been a misnomer in recent decades, this assumption that, that I think is really wrong that, um, Christians ought not speak out on political issues because, uh, listen, we, we might, might not take an interest in political issues, but I assure you, political issues will take an interest in you.
0: Well, moreover, I mean, it, don't we also need to be fair here in the lexicon that we use? And by that, I mean, okay, let's take the topic of abortion. Yeah, the, abortion is a political issue. It is also a medical issue. It is also a moral issue. And so, therefore, to somehow suggest that the the body politic touches on this topic, I mean, in a nation of self governance where we elect in Individuals who will then go to the state house, the White House, the Congress to pass laws that will then govern, uh, the, you know, and give guidance to the nation. Yes, there's a political means by which a lot of these topics are played out. But in my mind, it's almost as if we're we're trying to scapegoat, we're trying to surrender um, important moral issues, and somehow suggest that because there's a political dynamic or politics touches it, therefore it's a political issue, not a moral one, not one that ought to concern the church.
1: Sure, you're you're. Absolutely right, and a lot of people assume wrongly that uh, we keep our religion and our politics separate, but they inherently overlap, and and they, there's a huge need. I mean, I, I, let me say this: I'm really thankful our founding fathers didn't believe in keeping religion out of politics, because if if they had believed that, we wouldn't have an America. Well,
0: moreover, if we don't allow our our religion, or in this case our faith, to influence the way we think, the way we act, the way we govern ourselves, then I would have to ask the question, well, of what value, then, is
1: our faith? Exactly, exactly. Hey, Charles Carroll was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and Charles Carroll said this, quote, without morals, a republic cannot subsist or continue for any length of time. Now, listen to this. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. End of quote. Uh, a little bit simpler, I could put it this way. Noah Webster Noah Webster said, quote, Let it be impressed upon your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. And, you know, if 2014 had been... 1776, we really would not have an America, because, you know, back then, uh, our founders believed in a divine law giver, they believed in moral absolutes, they recognized a just cause, because, I mean, think about this, you know, there had been the Regulatory Act and the Stamp Act and the Port Act, and all of these things that they recognized were oppressive uh, by Britain on the colonists, and they, they said, you know, appealing to God for the rectitude of our intentions. In other words, you know, if if we're wrong, uh, we'll answer to God for it, and if we don't act, we'll answer to God for that. They were willing to be patriots and be involved because they recognized that the actions of Britain really violated an objective moral standard. And so, um, Craig, this conventional wisdom today uh, that, you know, quote you know christians aren't to sully themselves with with politics um that is a, that is a myth um, christians were involved in fighting slavery ending racism and segregation christians right now are fighting human trafficking and you know the uh, kidnapping of of young people to put them into the sex trade and child labor um, in In ancient Rome, Christians opposed gladiatorial combat and the death games and infanticide throughout history and temple prostitution and child sexual abuse and in Eastern countries uh, treating wives as property and so thank God that Christians have in previous generations been in po- involved in politics because it cut a swath of of beneficence and morality across the pages of history. And again, if we are to salvage our Constitution, and if we are, again, to have an America where we are free to uh, pursue liberty and serve our Creator, we've got to rediscover a biblical worldview, proclaim it, uh, even defend it. Uh, I'll I'll put it this way. Um, the idea that there's a God... And and a moral code. Uh, For many, that's a bitter pill to swallow. But, Craig, I would say that is a less bitter pill than the pill we're currently swallowing, which is really societal chaos and no boundaries, no rules.
0: If you've just joined us, our conversation today with Dr. Alex McFarland. He is one of the nation's leading Christian apologists, author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. It is newly released, as we mentioned a moment ago, by Regal Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com and, of course, Alex's website, AlexMcFarland.com. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with Dr. McFarland. When we do, uh, as we recognize the fact that painfully true inconvenient or not, the church no longer wields the influence it once did on the society and the world around us. How do we recapture all of that? Time out, then back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: And back, of course, to our conversation, Dr. Alex McFarland, my guest, the book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. Alex, as our time winds down, I'm reminded of the fact that certainly I think even with some degree of embarrassment, we would all agree that the church in the West simply no longer wields the kind of influence that it once did. Getting reengaged, of course, is one step that we need to talk about. Coming to the realization that we have got to. A- Gotten soft on, quite frankly, that, uh, that transformative side of Christianity, as we talked about earlier, is another important key. But I wonder, too, one of the ten issues that you dive into is the issue of the impact of pluralism. The fact that even though we feel as if we have absolutes within our belief system— somehow those absolutes don't always transfer to others, that we would suggest that sort of this mentality that says, well, you know, while I absolutely believe this is true for me, I know that there are many paths to God. I'm reminded years ago of a convention of Muslim clerics that Robert Schuler spoke at, where he made a comment about how that they all there, as he spoke from the dais, have served the same God. And I thought, boy, brother, are you confused either on the God that they serve or on the God that we serve? Is this arena of pluralism within the church also... Very damaging in terms of the the transformative ability that we are able to wield in, in influencing the world around us.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, we we've got to again believe scriptures like Acts four verse twelve that says, speaking of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, the name of Jesus. Uh, we we've got, I think, as a church, we need to be um, proud. To name the name of Christ, that our Savior is unique, the one and only Son of God who rose from the grave, and and you know we've just been lulled into this um, stupor. We hear about you know quote the three great Abrahamic faiths um, as if uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam were all commensurate and all the same. When in reality, uh, you know pluralism really means that people can believe whatever they want to believe, but it certainly doesn't mean that all beliefs are equally true. Uh, Christianity alone has a prophesied, virgin-born, sinless, risen from the grave, Savior. And uh, as I said earlier, that we, we, we simply must accept what Christ said, that people apart from Him were lost. And, and you know, today I was um, on another show, and I was commenting on Matthew 7, 21 through 24, where Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Lord, didn't we do many wonderful works? And he'll say, you know, I never knew you. So we've got to, again, tell the world about heaven being predicated on having a relationship with Jesus.
0: Well, and it also says in Scripture toward the end times that we will be persecuted for our faith. And and maybe part of the challenge here is that, you know, in the in the mad rush to want to be liked um, to not divide, to um, to not ruffle any feathers out there. That maybe we we don't take the positions that we once did, because well, after all, if we do that, and I say that my faith is true, and I dare challenge somebody else that theirs is built on shifting sand, they might not like me.
1: Mm, I know. Well, you know, uh, we we need to be concerned on not whether we have placated our neighbor, but whether we've really pleased our savior. Um, You know, I've I've got to say this, if I may, Craig. We do an event we've done for years and years called Truth for a New Generation. And last year we had people from 35 states. We had a a, a fairly large group from San Francisco and and the West Coast. And I I have to believe part of it uh, is due to your great support in KFAX. But if I could give a, a little plug here, this year, September 5 and 6, uh, the 2014 edition of Truth for a New Generation, which is an apologetics conference for all ages. We've got speakers like Ben Carson, Johnny Erickson-Tata, Josh McDowell, Eric Metaxas, Todd Starnes of Fox News, David Barton. It's, it's an awesome event. This year it's in, uh, Spartanburg, Spartanburg, South Carolina, September 5 and 6. Uh, um, because, um we believe that biblical worldview matters. We believe that the church can make a difference in this world, and we believe that God has called us to. And so, September five and six—I know it's a ways off—but let me encourage people to pray and please come. You know, uh, the website is generation dot com. Uh, call me naive, call me childlike, but I believe that America can have a great spiritual awakening. I believe that we've got to uh, be willing. For Christ to use each one of our lives, whatever our age, whatever our station in life, if we um, are believers, then we are persons in whom the Spirit of God dwells. We've been called. We've got the promises of God's Word. And so let me just challenge everyone listening to come to Spartanburg next September, just this fall, here Ben Carson and Josh and Metaxas and all these great speakers, and let's learn and be inspired and get networked and connected. And together, let's show let's show the world one more time that Christ's body of believers can absolutely transform a culture. It's well,
0: And Alex, I don't wish to embarrass myself here, but let me take it even a step further. I believe not only can we see our nation transformed, we should. In fact, I believe that Christ compels us to do so because quite frankly, where we're at right now is not pleasing to him. And so this is something that I think when we talk about returning back to truth and the application of same in our own lives, that not only are we transformed, but therefore then as we are transformed by the power of our faith and our relationship with him, we are then capable of influencing and transforming the world around us is not something that we just get to do. It's something that I think we as Christians ought to be compelled to do. So I I sure appreciate you coming on the program today, and I'll mention again for listeners, you mentioned about the Truth for a New Generation conference coming up September 5 and 6. Details on the web, TruthForNewGeneration.com, and uh, they can register there online as well, can't they, uh, Alex?
1: Sure, sure, and there, there's um, some discounts, early bird discounts and things like that. But um, you know Craig, I just so applaud the work that you do and and let me just read a quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Everybody has heard of, of Bonhoeffer i 'm sure, but he, you know he once said this, he said, "If I see a madman driving a car into a group of innocent bystanders, then I can 't as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe and then comfort the wounded. I must try if possible, said Bonhoeffer, to wrestle the steering wheel from out of the hands of the driver, so you know we 're watching our culture crash." We're watching as lost souls are leaving this world unprepared to meet God. So we've got to pray. We've got to be biblically informed. uh, We've got to obey God by standing up for truth in our nation. And, you know, what a a worthwhile thing to invest our lives in.
0: Indeed so. I mean, because here we sit otherwise not only watching just the car careen off the cliff. In fact, the entire country is about to careen off the cliff. And, of course, the only thing to be done... For um, evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. We appreciate the time. Dr. Alex McFarland, 10 Issues That Divide Christians, the new book details again on the web. You can order it online, alexmcfarland.com. We mentioned also about the upcoming conference, September 5 and 6. TruthForAnewGeneration.com for details and information. TruthForAnewGeneration.com.